Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. Well, praise God. Happy Wednesday. It's good to be alive. Amen. That's, that's one thing to be grateful for. Amen. I want to welcome you. Uh, tonight, those of you watching online, those of you watching at home, thank you so much for joining us wherever uh, you're watching or listening from. Um, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and if you're new with us, by the way, my name is Moses Khan. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege and honor to lead us tonight. Uh, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. If you're new to Wednesday night, by the way, if you're here for the first time, you're watching for the first time, uh, Wednesday night, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew uh, verse by verse. And so we just, we just slow down, we take our time, we study the Bible, we let the Bible speak to us, we let God do what he wants to do. And uh, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, amen? The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Um, we, we need moments like this to slow down, to observe uh, the Word of God. How many know that, that God... Um, appreciates when you use your mind? Got one amen on that. Christianity is not a brain-dead religion. Your following Jesus is not void of your brain. You You don't leave your brain at the door when you come in. Hello. Now, if some of you did, I give you permission to go back and get it. All right? Um, no, you, you, we, we use our mind because, because God is interested in our mind. Even when it comes to you know, uh, spiritual gifts such as you know, speaking in tongues, Paul emphasizes that even when you're doing that, when you're praying in the spirit, that at the same time you should be praying with your mind. That your mind ought to be engaged even within spiritual activities. Okay? And so why do we do this? Because studying the Bible is important. We need to go beyond just our five, 10 minute devotionals that we have in the morning, which are good and which are beautiful, which are amazing. But we need to take time to study the Bible, go through this verse by verse. Um, and how many know when you go through, through the Bible verse by verse, you can't skip passages? Yeah. Amen? And so you're, you're gonna have to face the truth of what the Bible says. And so uh, that's the joy that I get to, to lead Wednesday nights, and uh, I just find it such a privilege. So Matthew chapter 9, if you're there, say amen. Okay, verse uh, 14, it says this, um, then the disciples of John came to him, who's him? Jesus, saying, why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So before this, we've had, we've had people come up to Jesus, ask, them, ask him questions. We've had Pharisees come to Jesus and question him. We've had scribes come to Jesus and question him. And now here we have the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember the camel hair wearing, honey eating, locust eating, uh, you know, um, preacher. We have his disciples come and now question Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the new garment and a worse, or from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wine skin. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins so that both are preserved. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us a space like tonight to surround ourselves around your word. Lord, I pray that you would just impress on our hearts and on our minds the power of your word. Lord, that your word is, is not uh, ancient and and irrelevant, but God, that your word is active, it's life-giving, it is alive. And so we pray that, that, that in these next moments, as we study your word, as we look to what you mean in this, in this portion of, of Matthew, Holy Spirit, that we would experience life, that we would experience life. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. This is your word, and so we're here to listen to you. We, we want to know what, what you have to say tonight, God. I pray that you would do that if there's any, if I, if there's any distractions, if there's, if there's even, uh, Father, uh, things that are persuading us to not hear well, I pray that you would just rebuke those things, move those things to the background so that we can be attentive and hear your voice clearly and plain tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Are you ready for this? Okay. So it says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So what's the problem they present before Jesus? Fasting, right? The problem is they've spent some time observing Jesus and observing Jesus' disciples, however long it's been, whether it's six months or a year, we don't know. Uh, but they've observed Jesus. They've observed um, Jesus' disciples. Now, last week, what was Jesus doing? He was partying. He, he went to, he went, remember whose house he went to? Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Beautiful. Okay. Matthew's a tax collector and tax collector, good or bad? Bad. Okay, good. Sweet. Um, and so, and so, so last week we found Jesus at Matthew's house and he is partying. He is having uh, dinner. He's having food and he's having fellowship with sinners and tax collectors. And so now in this scene, you have the disciples of John approach Jesus and ask him a question regarding fasting. So this is, this is very, this is very interesting because, because they look to him and they go, listen, listen, we fast, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they, they don't fast. Now, this is, this is very interesting because these are people, okay? Let me know if you know anybody like this. These are people who, who take inventory of religious activities. The, these, are, these are people who not only take religious inventory of their, of their own life, they also take inventory of religious activity in the lives of other people. These are the people that are looking at other people during worship. Come on, talk back to me if you can. 
These are the people looking around during worship, trying to see how everybody else is worshiping God. And so, and so these are the people, they look around, somebody's, somebody's having a good time, they're worshiping God, and they're like, man, look at this person. This person doesn't know what it means to worship God. Where's the fear? Where's the reverence? Look at this person, so, so, uh, so extra and, and so emotional and so extravagant. And then you have other people who, who look around and they go, wow, look at this person. He's just sitting there, arms crossed. He, he doesn't even know the Lord. This guy, he, what is he doing? So these are, these are critics. These are critics. They're, they're taking inventory of religious activity, not only in their life, but in the life of others. And they're coming to conclusions, not only about themselves, but about other Christians. Here's the question. They go, they go hey, listen, Jesus, we practice, because look at this. They know what they do. They know what the Pharisees do. And they know what the disciples don't do. So clearly there's this critical observation taking place. And they're saying, Jesus, listen, we practice this spiritual discipline. We sacrifice to God. We fast. Why don't your disciples fast? And, 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 and I would assume that they, that they said it in a tone. You know, when, you know when somebody says something in a certain tone? And it's like they, they asked a question, but they were also making a statement. Right? You know, people like that. And so it's not like they were just saying, why don't they? Within the tone of how they said it, they were implying, Jesus, you should make them fast. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you their rabbi? Aren't you their teacher? Don't you know that we should be fasting? We should be sacrificing. We should be giving external um, views. Remember, remember in Matthew, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, or sorry, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about uh, the way we should fast. He said, he said, the way we should fast shouldn't be like, uh, you know, the hypocrites who go out into, into public and, and they're like messy hair and, and tired and gloomy and, and you go, man, what's, what's going on? Are you okay? Uh, don't worry, man. I'm just fasting, blessing the Lord, giving the Lord my best, right? He said, don't do it like them. Make sure you're put together. Make sure you don't look tired. Take a shower, brush your hair. Amen, somebody. That's just good advice in general. Um, and so Jesus said, do that when it comes to fasting, so that it does not become about the external. And what do they want to make it about? They want to make it about the external, right? And so he goes, listen, they go, well, why don't you make them fast, right? So these are, these are your, your typical critical churchgoers. Now, you ever wonder, like, why are we always the worst to each other? Isn't, do you find that? Like, like within Christianity, like we're always the worst to each other. We're always the most critical. We, we have, right now, right now, you have your own wor- version of why do fill in the blank. You have your own version of that. I promise you, you do. You have your own version of why do I have to live a certain way and they don't get to. Or, or why do they look like that? Why, do they, why don't they? You have your own version of this where you're taking inventory of religious activities, not only in your life, but in the life of other people, and it's making you critical. It's making you critical, and you, you are now beginning to not build people up, you're actually beginning to tear them down. Now here's how you excuse that behavior. You excuse that behavior by saying, well, I don't verbalize it. So, so it's just within your heart. So, so you don't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, dot, dot, dot. Why do dot, dot, dot? You just 
verbalize or you internalize it. You, you speak it in your heart. You speak it in your mind. And now you begin to look at people through filters and you look at people through a spirit of, of criticism and, and you cannot enjoy fellowship because you're too busy taking religious inventory. Amen. Thank you for your honesty. And, and, so, and so that's what is happening. That's what is happening here. Let me ask you a question. What do you see critically about others that deep down actually results in you feeling better about yourself? I promise you things exist. What do you see critically in others that deep down result in you feeling better about yourself. And that's probably the number one reason we, we, are, we, we have the tendency to continue that type of behavior. Even though it might not be external or verbalized, it's internalized. We say it in our hearts and our minds. And so that's what the disciples of John are doing. Why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, Jesus, why don't they fast? Now, Jesus' response Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests, who are the wedding guests? The disciples, you guys are smart, you guys are brilliant. Okay, so um, the wedding guests, right? These are Jesus' followers. They are the disciples, right? Now notice what he says. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What was the question Jesus was asked? Why aren't they fasting, right? So Jesus isn't saying, Jesus, I want you to pick up on this language. Jesus doesn't say, can the wedding guests fast? He says, can the wedding guests mourn? So quick historical lesson. During this time, fasting was equated to mourning. So in, in the days of Jesus' ministry here on earth, fasting was done as a means to mourn, as a means to, to express ache and emotion. You've lost somebody so you would fast or, or you've sinned and so you would fast as a means of repentance. It was a means of mourning and, and longing and aching. And so Jesus goes and he looks at the disciples of John and he says, listen, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom? So who's the bridegroom? Jesus. You guys, are, you guys should be up here. But as long as the bridegroom is with them. So he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will actually fast. So before we get to that, let's get to this sentence that Jesus said because it is packed. Jesus says to them, you wanna know what following me is like? Following me is like going to a wedding. And I'm the bridegroom. Okay, now, now picture this. He's saying, he's saying, should the wedding guests mourn? It's a rhetorical question. Do wedding guests mourn at a wedding? No. Weddings are meant to be a moment and a place for celebration. Weddings represent partying. Weddings represent celebration. You, you don't invite depressed, miserable, downcast people to come party with you at your wedding. Right? Remember, remember Eeyore? Winnie the Pooh? You, you don't invite Eeyore to do a speech at your wedding. You, you don't, right? Uh, well, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's great to be here. I mean, not really, because I, I had to get up and dress up and uh, 
But I mean, you know, the food was all right. And uh, you, you don't invite that kind of individual to a wedding celebration. Why? Because it's supposed to be a moment of celebration. It's supposed to be a moment of partying. It's supposed to be a moment of joy and, 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 and singing. And, 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 and Jewish people would actually have a wedding that would last seven days. And even though during this time, it was a regular practice to fast once or twice a week, during the seven days of the wedding, you would not fast. Why? Because you understood that this is an occasion for celebration. We are giving thanks to God for what is happening, for this union taking place. We're going to celebrate, we're going to party, and we are going to have joy. So what did Jesus just say? Jesus just said that the wedding guests cannot mourn because the bridegroom is with them. So I want you to catch this. He's saying, me being here is too happy of an occasion for them to fast. Got this? Me being in the flesh, them being my disciples, me the bridegroom, Christianity following me, a wedding. This is celebratory. This is joyful. This is too happy of an occasion for them to mourn, for them to walk around like spiritual Eeyores. Is that good? Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about bridegroom because, because Jesus, Jesus just uh, referred to something in the Old Testament uh, that you and I don't often talk about, but we, but we kind of touched on it last week where, we, where Jesus quotes out of Hosea, remember that? And the whole, the whole um, concept of Hosea, the whole purpose of Hosea uh, was for Hosea to marry a prostitute so that Israel could see their relationship with God. And so here's what Jesus just did that you and I don't pick up on is that the Old Testament is filled with references to God being Israel's bridegroom. Read, read the prophets, read Jeremiah as he, as he prophesies about the new covenant. He, he, he talks about God being the bridegroom of Israel. That's why there's, there's a moment even in Jeremiah where, where God for a moment is so fed up and he goes, listen, I'm gonna spiritually divorce you for a season so that you understand. Now God, God reestablishes that covenant and he, and he continues his faithfulness. But throughout the Old Testament, God is known as the bridegroom of Israel. So what did Jesus just do? He called himself God. That's, so, so see, you and I go, oh, this is romantic. This is why, you know, this is how we, this is how we come up with worship songs. He's the bridegroom. And we, you know. No, no, no. He, he literally just, there's, this, there's layers of things behind this title, bridegroom, that you and I don't get to, but they would have heard him say this, and all of a sudden, references to Old Testament passages of God being Israel's bridegroom. That's why God, when Israel would worship other gods, would say, hey, you, you have committed adultery against me. You, know, you cannot commit adultery against someone who's not your partner. And so God has covenanted in such a way that he says, listen, I'm the bridegroom, you're my bride. Now, we see the same language take, on, take place in the New Testament letters where Paul tells us that the church is the bride of Jesus, making Jesus the bridegroom. So, so when Jesus mentions the fact that he's the bridegroom, he is calling himself 
God. And he's saying, I am now with them. So for thousands of years, or for a thousand years, as they waited, as they longed, as they hoped for the Messiah to come, the appointed one to come, and he is finally with them, why would they mourn? This is a cause for celebration. This is a cause to be happy. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay, so then, Jesus says, let's get rid of this. Then Jesus says, okay, so, so we've, we've established this. He says, then the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Now, this in the original language means to be violently taken away, to be snatched almost. And so what is Jesus referring to when he says the bridegroom will be taken away? He's referring to his death. He's referring to the cross, which we've talked about this in, in Jewish mentality. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you think of Messiah, you don't think of the cross. When you, th- when you think of the Messiah, you don't think of death. When you, don't, when you think of Messiah, you don't think of surrendered to Romans. Romans uh, have him in captivity. No, when you think of Messiah, you think of a militant man. You think of one that is creating an army. You think of one that is going to overcome and overthrow Rome. So remember during this time, Israel is under Roman captivity. So a big thing for Israel is having a free land. And now if Rome is taking over their land, then they're actually not walking in the thing that God has promised them to walk in. And so for them, the Messiah, one of the greatest things he was going to do is he was going to free them from this oppression so that they can have their land back. Now, this is where ideas come where they think, okay, so if, if the Messiah is going to come, then he's going to come. He's going to be violent. He's going to be aggressive. He is not going to be taken away. So let's just for a moment put ourselves into their shoes because we just kind of skip over this. This would have taken them back. This would have shocked them. Take, taken away. No, no, no. We're, we've got plans. Remember Peter? Peter's got plans. What do you mean, Jesus, you're going to the cross? You're not going to the cross. I rebuke you. That's what he said to Jesus. And then Jesus looked at him and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of people. And we had that whole discourse. So that's what's happening. They're, they're hearing Jesus say, the bridegroom is with them. Right now is the time for celebration. Right now is a moment to be happy, to, to celebrate, to be joyful, not to fast, not to mourn. But there will be a day when the bridegroom is going to be taken away. We know that that is when Jesus voluntarily gives himself over to Roman authority and is crucified and takes upon himself all the sin of humanity so that as we put our faith in Jesus, he takes our past, present, and future sin upon himself and what we get in exchange simply by believing and not earning is his righteousness. Right relationship with God. This is what makes our faith not just a religion. It's because Jesus didn't come down and he said, listen, let's just, sent, let's just set up tent. Let's just, let's just make monuments, make statues. Let, let's make me the biggest deal there ever is. No, he understood that there's a greater problem that humanity deals with and that problem is sin. And it can only be dealt with if there is a sacrifice sufficient enough, righteous enough, perfect enough to be a substitute for the sin of humanity. And that is only found 
in Jesus. And so the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. And then they will fast. So, is, is Jesus saying that Christianity doesn't include fasting? Now, there are other religions of this world that fast. But here's what happens. The reality is that the bridegroom has come. Someone say, has come. Why is that important, Pastor Mo? Because the language is not the bridegroom will come. Okay? Now this is important. He has come. Not will one day come. He has come. Now when they fasted in this time, they fasted from the perspective that he one day will come. Catch that? When we fast, we fast from the perspective that he has already come. What am I saying? I'm saying this changes the way we fast. See, see, they fasted because they had not tasted. We fast because we have tasted. It's different. They fasted because he had not come. We fast because he has already come. We're already fulfilled. We're already satisfied. Our, our desires have already been met in him. And so when we fast, it's not a religious activity that, that we're trying to somehow get to God, to taste God for the first time. No, we fast because he's already come. We have relationship with him. We have, we have now been satisfied in the deepest parts of our soul. And so we want more of what we've tasted. It's different. It's not a religious activity. It's God. I, I've tasted your goodness. You have come. And so now spiritual disciplines like fasting are not so that I one day will be fulfilled. No, it is from a place of fulfillment already. You, you catch how our spiritual disciplines are different. Hello? Okay. Does that make sense? All right. So that's important, right? That's, that's important because even when we fast, we fast from a place where, uh, where we're already resting in the finished work of Jesus. That's the place we fast from. We've already beheld his glory. Talk back to me if you can. Amen. Okay. There's the music. There's the sign that I have to close. So we fast not because we haven't tasted. We fast because we have tasted. Jesus said, listen, you haven't tasted. That's why you're upset about them not fasting. But because I'm here, they can, they can taste. They can experience my goodness. This is a wedding. This is a moment of celebration. This is a moment to have joy. And so Jesus says this, and then he, he provides two examples for us to to understand and further grasp what he's trying to say. And he says this, which for us kind of seems weird, but let's try to make sense of it. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is, is made. Do you understand that? Okay, good. So I don't have to explain it too much. Um, fabric shrinks. You wash it, 
shrink. Like, like I'm a small person, but I'm like built weird. Like, like I'm small, but I'm muscular. <laughs> look, at me, look at me using this platform to, to make myself feel better. No, um, but it's weird. Like I, I'm small, but like, like things that should fit me height-wise don't fit me because I'm so muscular. Um, I just have some fun. Um, and so what I have to do sometimes is I have to get a larger size and, and wash it and shrink it before I can wear it. And so, you know, disadvantage of, you know, being so healthy and, uh, and active, I guess. I don't know. Um, I, I'm just messing. I'm just messing. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying listen, if you have, if you have, if you have a garment that, that, has already been, that has already shrunk, it's old, and you put a new garment that, that is going to shrink, it's, it's still new, it's, it's going to experience wear and tear, then, then when it shrinks, it's going to tear the old garment. And, and now it's just going to be, now it's just going to be useless and, and a worse tear is made. So, so that, that makes sense. And then so in verse 17, last verse here, he says, neither is new wine, so, so a, a, a new cloth in an old garment doesn't work. And he says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and wine is spilt and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine, if it's put into fresh wineskin, both are preserved. So here's what would happen. Wineskins um, were, were made uh, from, from animals, leather, right? Um, and, and you would put liquids, water, or, or wine in them. And, and what would happen is as they would age, they would become old, stiff, and brittle. Now, if you put new wine into an old wine skin, and the new wine still has a little bit of fermentation to do, fermenting to do, it releases gases, it expands. And so what Jesus is saying, when you do that, when you put new wine that still has fermenting, that still has gases, it's still gonna expand, you put that into an old, dry, brittle wine skin, then as those gases expand, it's going to burst the wine skin. So you, you ruin the wine skin and you also ruin the wine. And so Jesus is saying, this is, this is what happens. He, 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 he's trying to explain that he's actually bringing, here's, here's the whole point. He's saying, I'm bringing a new way of connecting to God. That's the point. The point is, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a new way of connecting to God and you cannot take your old ways and marry them to new ways and think it's gonna work. It's not gonna work. It's, it's, it's new wine in old wine skin. You're gonna lose the wine skin and you're gonna lose the wine. It's not gonna work. You cannot actually continue to live out your old life and still try to marry it to the new way. You, you can't take your past, still live in it, and just become a more Christianized version of what you already were. You can't do it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're going to have to leave the old thing back. You're going to have to leave the old way, the, the past. You're going to have to leave the past in the past and you're gonna to have to take on the new. Forget the old wineskin. You need a new wineskin to take on the new wine. 
And so, and so when we try to, to take our past selves and, and, and just make a more Christianized version of who we are, and so nothing has changed other than maybe our Instagram bio, God first. And nothing's wrong with that, but something is wrong with that if that's the only place Christianity is displayed. Something's wrong when we say we've, we've, we are now following Jesus, but our Christianity is only displayed on a Sunday morning service or a Wednesday night. It has to go beyond that. You cannot just remain your old self. So, so you're still in control of your desires. You're still in control of your, the trajectory of your life. So, so I haven't actually turned toward God. I'm still this way. But now I'm just a Christianized version. And so maybe I changed my language. I, I talk about, man, I'm favored. I'm, I'm blessed. And, and God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. And, and it's so general because you can't make it specific because if you make it specific, then it has to go into areas of your life. So your Christianity becomes general. And there's no difference between you and just somebody who believes in an existence of a God. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're gonna ruin the wineskin, you're going to ruin the wine. Translation, number one, you're going to ruin yourself. Try, try to live this way. Not, not letting go of the old religious, traditional things. Right? Some of you who've grown up in churches, there's this massive pressure that every time you read the Bible, you have to insert yourself into the main, main, as the main character of the story, and now you have to be Moses. You have to be David, but you're not Moses and you're not David. That's not how you read the Bible. The Bible is about God. So if we see a, a glimpse of goodness in Moses, it's a foreshadow of the complete goodness of Jesus. If we see a glimpse of goodness in David, it's the foreshadow of the complete goodness and faithfulness of Jesus. Because here's what happens. You like, like imagine the pressure of growing up with a name like Moses. I kid you not, every prayer meeting I went to, you're gonna be Moses, you're gonna deliver your people, you're, and, and what happens, you begin to insert yourself as the hero of the story and you get crushed under the weight. Because you're not the savior. You can't do it in your own strength. And so, so you're gonna ruin yourself. Number two, you're going to ruin Christianity. You say, I can do that? Yeah, you can. Why? Here's what's going to happen. Because you're going to try to marry the old with the new, you are going to end up living a non-transformative Christianity. And when you live a non-transformative Christianity, the world looks at that and says, it doesn't work. Why would I want it? There's no power. You're still addicted, you're still a mess. And that's not to say that we become perfect. God, does, God never promises perfection, but he does promise healing. He does promise redemption. He does promise wholeness. 
And so when we begin to live a, a non-transformative Christianity, we ruin Christianity for people. Number one, we paint the wrong picture of what Christianity is. Number two, we tell people there's no power in Christianity. And so we say things like, well, you know, as long as you believe in God, as long as you do the right things, as long as you're generally, as long as you're generally a good person. And what we end up doing is, is, is even sometimes unknowingly, we're, we're answering the question, how do I make this more palatable? And so, yes, I, I, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. But maybe, maybe I'll just scratch out the passages that have to do with hell. So that I don't feel bad about never telling my neighbors about Jesus. Because if I remove hell out of the equation, then the responsibility of telling other people about the gospel, well, what's the need? What's the point of that? Or, or maybe because, maybe because I, have, I have unsaved friends, maybe they believe in God, but they're of a different religion, or maybe there's somebody in my family who's of a different religion. Maybe I remove the areas where Jesus says, I am the only way to God. And we're making it more palatable, more palatable, more palatable. And it's a non-transformative Christianity. Well, I just, I just want to follow Jesus in isolation, so forget reading the book of Acts. Forget the first glimpse we get of how Christianity is supposed to roll out after Jesus has ascended. It's supposed to be in community, sacrifice, prayer, fasting. I, I know you and you know me and, and we're not from different, we're not from same backgrounds, but man, we worship the savior, his name is Jesus, and he breaks cultural and ethnic boundaries and even economical boundaries and so we do life together and maybe you're not like me, but we worship this incredible God, so I will sell what I have because I know you're in lack. Forget reading passages like that. Let's make it more palatable. How can it go down more easy? And so you cannot, you cannot have your own version of Christianity. You can't. You can't marry the new with the old. The new wine requires a new wineskin. And all this, the whole point is the fact that Jesus is, he is done with external means and external ways of connecting to God. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount is forget the external. I'm concerned about your heart. I'm concerned that you've done all the right things and, and given and, and you come to church and you do all these things, but in your heart, you have not surrendered to me. And so he comes against religious and traditional practices who, who tell God, God, this is how you need to move. Imagine the audacity of telling God, God, this is how you're supposed to move. You know what's interesting about the disciples of John? They, they knew the law and prophets but missed God when he came in the flesh.
Do you know why? Do you know why they missed God? Even though they knew the law and prophets and he showed up in the flesh, they missed him. Why? Because he didn't show up the way they wanted him to show up. They missed God because he didn't do it their way. That's crazy. I can miss God when I think that God should be operating by my ways. And so God could be operating, he could be doing things, but because he shows up in a way that I didn't want him to, I miss him. So what's the conclusion, Pastor Mo? We go back to the, the bridegroom imagery. Here's what Jesus is saying. Not only is he saying, I am God, pointing us back to the Old Testament imagery of God being the bridegroom of Israel. He's also establishing in you and his followers that this thing is supposed to function like a marriage. Like a marriage. You know what, what two things exist simultaneously in a marriage? Beauty and love. No marriage survives on love alone. No marriage. And at the same time, no marriage survives on duty alone. You, you have this thing intertwined. Duty and love. Duty and love working together. You have a marriage that's only love-focused? Man, that's going to end up in a shipwreck. And you have a, you have a marriage that is only duty-focused? There's no meaning, no purpose, no heart, no soul? You need both. And that's what Jesus is, that's what Jesus is revealing. You need both. You need both. So are there standards? Is there a new call? Is there? A, absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus gave a higher call. You don't have to get into bed with somebody. Just look at someone. That's adultery. But at the same time, he says, I'm the one. I'm the one who's going to save you. Not the other way around. So what's the conclusion? What's the prayer? that both love and duty would work together. Both love and duty would work together. So, so does God call you to live a righteous life? Duty, absolutely. But whose righteousness are you walking in? His love? Does that make sense? Let me pray. Father, I thank you. God, that we would not be people who are ever hearing and never listening. That we would have the knowledge of godliness but not walk in the power. And at the same time, Father, that, that we would not be people who are just duty focused, externally focused on, on activities and, and principles and disciplines, but God, that we would be moved by your love. God, I thank you that you have gotten rid of the old wineskins. 
I thank you for new wineskins. We thank you for new wine. New wine, God, that is refreshing and fulfilling and satisfying and, and does not bear the weight of trying to be our own savior. Lord, we worship you. We adore you. Help us to love you even more. I pray that you would continue to break people out of, of bondage and, and, and chains of, of religious activity and traditions and addictions that are holding them and that they would experience liberty under the banner of your name. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room and even those listening and watching online, God, who have not received the free gift of forgiveness that only you can offer, God, persuade their hearts. Oh, that they would know you. That they would be satisfied. You can have a relationship with their God who came in the flesh and died on their behalf and was raised three days later. Thank you for hearts being persuaded right now. God, we give you honor and we give you glory in Jesus' name.